Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Meaning is made in moments. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I'm joined by Kelly Leonard. Kelly is the executive director of learning and applied improvisation at Second City Works. His book, Yes And, Lessons from the Second City, was released to critical acclaim in 2015 by HarperCollins. Kelly is a popular speaker on the power of improvisation to transform people's lives. He co-created an initiative with the Center for Decision Research at the Booth School at the University of Chicago, the second science project that looks at behavioral science through the lens of improvisation. He also hosts the podcast, Getting to Yes And, for Second City Works and WGN Radio. For over 20 years, Kelly oversaw Second City's live theatrical divisions, where he helped generate original productions with such talent as Tina Fey, Stephen Colbert, Amy Poehler, Seth Meyers, Steve Carell, Keegan-Michael Key, Amy Sedaris, and Adam McKay, among others. Kelly shares his journey from starting out at Second City as a dishwasher to producing shows and ultimately serving as the executive director of Second City Works. Second City Works focuses on improv's application in the business world to improve outcomes and business performance. We dig into the power of improv and group mindfulness as ways to be a better human. We talk about the role of creativity in early stages of innovation with its divergent thinking and why it's important not to conflate creativity and innovation. Kelly shares how his research on improv led to a collaboration with the Booth School of Business and the Second Science Initiative. I really appreciated Kelly's insights on the importance of practice and how improv can be a form of practice in entertainment, business, and life. It was an honor having Kelly join me on the show. I hope you enjoy the episode. Kelly Leonard, welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so uh, I work at the Second City Comedy Theater in Chicago. And essentially, I mean, I have. I've worked my entire adult life here. I started out uh, in 1988. Um, it was my first gig out of college, and I was a dishwasher, um, which is not nearly as glamorous as it sounds. Um, the uh, uh, the back bar in those days was just an unpleasant place to be. You could smoke in the theater. Not, not good. <clears throat> but uh, amazing work was being done. Mike Myers and Bonnie Hunt were on the main stage. Jane Lynch was in our ETC theater. Chris Farley just got hired in the touring company. Um, and I was just uh, blown away by the work. And I don't know if you know how Second City is set up, but we do two acts of scripted content and a third act that is improvised. And that's what I was drawn to. I was drawn to this world of improvisation. Uh, so fast forward to 1992, and I uh, became producer of the Second City, and I got to work with people, hire people and work with people like Tina Fey, Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, Keegan-Michael Key, Jason Sudeikis, just a, a really who's who of comedy. Um, 2015, 
Uh, I wrote a book called Yes And, which is about how we take our improv principles and bring them into the worlds of business. And that's when I really, well, I kind of had a midlife crisis. Uh, and I decided that I, I was ready to do something different and I didn't know what that was. Um, and so really where I sit right now is the first part of my career was all about improvisation on stage. And the latter part of my career is about improvisation off stage. So my title now is Executive Director of Learning and Applied Improvisation. I work with academic institutions. I work with in the healthcare space and you know, still a lot of work in corporate, but all centered on um, what improvisation can do to make you a better human being. Uh, if, I, if I can sort of nail it down to that one thing, that's what it is. Thank you, Kelly. And it is it's an honor for for me to have you here uh, as a obviously as, as a kid, I grew up in Illinois and mm -hmm. uh, as a comedy nerd. Right. Second City was kind of Mecca. And uh, when I, in undergrad wrote sketch comedy, uh, went to grad school and focused on group decision making. And then my mm -hmm. career has been in uh, user experience, customer experience, design and strategy. And I've always had actually an improv approach to it. And yeah. a few years ago for one of my design teams, just your, your book was uh, required reading. We did a, oh. we did a book club on it because I've always asked my design teams to embrace the principles of, of improv. Want to ask you about how your, your interests in improv uh, emerged? Were you, were you always into theater and comedy or did it just so happen this this dishwashing job was yeah <laughs> one to not turn down. So yeah, this is kind of interesting because um, uh, I I I found myself walking backwards into this. Um, I wanted to be a playwright. That was that was the the goal I had when I started working here. And and basically, uh, I did a bunch of informational interviews out of college. My dad was a, a theater reviewer, uh, among other things, here in town. And the advice I got from everyone was, if you want to work in theater, work in a theater, doesn't matter what you do. Um, and so I got this, this gig at Second City. And I did not know that Second City, I was a theater nerd and I was a comedy nerd. I didn't know Second City created its content through improvisation. Ironically, um, I was very into improvisation in other fields. So I was a deadhead. I saw over 89 Grateful Dead shows. And I that, that, that part where they do the Space Jam, I, I was the one person who didn't go to the bathroom. I, I love that. Uh, big fan of jazz. Uh, I did my thesis on Jack Kerouac and the Beat Generation. So there's a whole chapter on, spe on spontaneous bop prosody, which is sort of the uh, improv writing. Um, and so, uh, so I had this inclination, but, but didn't wasn't aware of it in, in the context of this theater. And so... When I did discover that, it was just a sort of a natural fit uh, into my lived experience up to that time and really additive because um, improvisation and all those other contexts uh, was amazing, but I hadn't applied it to the way I lived my life. Um, and when I realized that, you know, the woman who created this work, Viola Spolin, all the exercises and the games that this is based on, she was a social worker in the 20s at Jane Addams Hull House, and she was basically her job was to better assimilate uh, children, immigrant children coming into her care. Uh, so these exercises were all designed to get people to better collaborate and communicate and empathize. And I actually just finished this book, Rehumanizing Leadership by Michael Chavez, who, who runs corporate education at Duke. And it's an amazing call for looking at the future of work, which is, it, it, which is so dominated by things like AI. 
And then recognizing that rather than, you know, having a bunch of people who need to learn how to code, um, what we need to do is we have to double down on humans and, and what makes humans tick and what are the things that computers can't do? Well, you know what? They, they're not funny and they can't improvise. <laughs> So, you know, we're safe, uh, but a lot of other people are going to have to figure out how to reskill. And it's not just like, you know, uh, rote jobs. We're also talking about like surgeons and dentists and anything that a, a precision kind of um, uh, skill uh, is just as much in danger as those sort of rote jobs that are at the bottom of the economy. Thank you. Uh, yeah, just uh, commenting on a, a couple things that you said that is uh, I love the the notion of improv in other contexts, not just comedy, theater. And mm -hmm. a, a recent guest on the podcast was Natalie Nixon. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, no. but the, the creativity leap. And uh, she was steeped in academia for a long time and has you know since left. But uh, a lot of her PhD research was looking at creativity. And one of the lenses was uh, jazz improv and some yeah. of the heuristics in jazz and how important that is to what you're just the kind of the future of work, the future of humanity on emergent systems, leaderless groups, like when, when to step forward, how to support, you know, uh, some really powerful work there. And again, combining two of my uh, kind of passions has been how, how groups decide and come and make meaning and, uh, and improv. And so I've been fascinated with some of the collaboration that you're doing with the Booth School yeah. And if you don't mind, could you, sure. could you, ex, ex, you know, expand upon that for the guests and also, so I don't <laughs> step all over what I think it is, but yeah, I'm yeah, fascinated yeah. with the work you're doing. Yeah. So um, th this, this was born out of the, the midlife crisis um, uh, uh, and also sparked by a fire. Uh, so when I decided to step down, um, luckily uh, my boss at the time, uh, was basically like, you're, you're unhirable. Uh, so why don't you do this? We'll make you a consultant for a year and you can either build a bridge out or build a bridge back into second city. Um, and I'm on vacation in Michigan. I, I had just moved into this, the, a new office, like right next to the owner, beautiful. Uh, and I'm on, on vacation I get a text from my, my buddy and he goes, Oh, your office is on fire. And I work at second city. So I'm assuming that's a bit, uh, but it was not second city caught fire. And uh, my office was like right over the epicenter and my office was completely destroyed. So uh, I went to, we got these offsite, you know, off campus um, offices. And I was, I was with the corporate group because uh, they, the, their offices were destroyed as well. And so in conversation uh, with those folks, they were like, look, you're, you're a free agent now. What could you build for us? And when I was on book tour, I had noticed that because uh, uh, I, you always go to like, uh, bookstores to see if your book's there. So I'm in the business section and I noticed that there was a lot of books on the art of negotiation that mention improv, but don't go deeper. So I'd had this idea in my head. I go, what if we found an academic with, who's an expert in negotiation? We built a workshop with them. And, and my, my boss, Steve, at the time was like, yeah, great, go do it. So um, I ended up uh, uh, going up to the University of Chicago to meet with Eugene Caruso. Um, he uh, invited his wife, Heather, um, because he must have known that this was the person I was meant to speak to. Um, and as I'm doing my rap on improv to Heather about how it's, you know, um, yoga for your social skills. And essentially, like I say, improv is noisy group mindfulness and, and it's a practice in being unpracticed. And Heather counters, she's like, Kelly, we have, we're behavioral scientists. We have decades and decades of research that show us that people make bad decisions for themselves. 
and you have a practice and an art form in making better decisions for yourselves. And those two things have never been put together. And I, I, the amazing conversation, I immediately called my wife on the car ride back. And I'm like, we're coming up tomorrow to meet with Heather because my wife is a, um, uh, she was the artistic director of the training center here for a long time. She's a tenured professor in comedy and improvisation. And, and essentially over the next couple months, uh, Heather and Anne and I developed this thing called the Second Science Project, which got greenlit by Richard Thaler, the Nobel Prize winning uh, economist, because he ran the Center for Decision Research at Booth back then. Um, and the Second Science Project looks at behavioral science through the lens of improvisation and vice versa. So what does that mean? Well, we did research and we have a paper coming out next year. We created exec executive education programs. We also created um, three levels of orientation programs that are still being used uh, by everyone at the University of Chicago, undergrad, grad, and also at the law school. Um, and uh, we were doing for about four years a weekly lab that that's not happening right now. And, and Heather's moved to UCLA, but right now we're entrenched in academia at a number of different institutions. And we hope to get funding to start up the research again, because that was kind of an amazing, amazing part about this. But there's not, I mean, you mentioned jazz. There's a lot of academic literature on improvisation, uh, jazz, jazz formed improvisation as it relates to things like leadership and communication and collaboration. There's very little, very little on theatrical, which is a way more direct uh, link than the jazz. I mean, you know, the, the, the becoming an incredible jazz musician, I mean, that's, that's one in a million, right? Every human being improvises. So our, our stuff is, is so much more direct. And, and I, I think what you'll see in the coming years is more people venturing into these sort of evidence-based areas uh, with the understanding that, I, I, I keep saying this to people, it's like, we gotta come up with a better term than soft skills, right? Cause they're the hardest skills. They are, they are. Yeah. Yeah, I have a, a good friend of mine and early in our career, we started out just you know in our mid twenties at a management consulting firm and uh, he's a super interesting dude, right? He was a math major at Michigan State, but was also mm -hmm. captain of the hockey team. Cool. Uh, got his MBA at Wharton and very much a math and finance guy. But one thing, and, and he's, you know, he's consulted at uh, uh, BCG and McKinsey. Mm -hmm. right? So he has all the business credentials. But I remember him one time telling me, you know, Matt, when we get really stuck, we have to bring in the liberal arts people to figure this out. Yeah, and, right. He, and, and it was the same conversation too. He's talked about mergers and acquisitions that went sideways because of basically human dynamics, right? So yeah. we definitely need yeah better a better term than than soft skills. I um, so in the in the mid nineties. So I lived in Minneapolis for about fifteen years. So then yeah. was, you know uh, and uh, did training also at the Brave New Workshop yeah. up there and. I remember meeting a grad student from the University of Minnesota that he was in an improv class because he was starting to do some work. He was interested, and I believe it was coming out of Rotman School of Business in Toronto at the time, was uh, positive outcomes. Uh, and I, I know this is going to just sound like over cliche, but but taking a yes and approach to decision making in business and what that did to improve uh, consensus, mm -hmm. satisfaction, and the quality of the the work and so to your point it's like maybe just scratching the surface there but i i feel like when you really dig in more to the dynamics of of improv and uh years ago i did uh some some intensive training at the 
Illinois Institute of Technologies and Institute of Design. And what I love is uh, the, the vast majority of your first day is we go to Second City to really open up on what divergent thinking can be, yeah, how to be right. open. And so I love that kind of educational connection as well. To your point too, I know you're doing a lot of great work in business, uh, but maybe it's the maybe it's the midlife crisis in me. Uh, but really looking at what you've said, like the the notion of group mindfulness or how yeah. to be a better human. Yeah. Can you can you expand upon that sure. a little bit too? Because it, it it's so it's so powerful. Uh, and yet sometimes I think it I have trouble explaining it because it's like I if you haven't done improv theater or some of the exercises sometimes it's hard but if you I know you're an expert at at telling and selling this uh if you don't sure. mind why yeah. why it's so important to be a good human and how improv can help well uh, I, I I often tell that story in this way which is when you look at people who are peak performers <laughs> so it's, let's just assume that we all <clears throat> want to be peak performers in in our various domains peak performers like musicians, uh, like uh, entertainers, like athletes, they practice. I mean, literally, you go to Wrigley Field uh, and you see them playing catch before a game. And that is not um, just a, a, you know, whatever, we were blowing off steam. They are doing that uh, because they know they're going to have to bring those skills into play uh, when they start playing their game. So let's think about life. How often do we practice? We don't. Um, and, And places where maybe we used to, like church or, or other places are increasingly um, uh, not not available or, or not of interest to people. We've lost trust in institutions and in, in, in religion, all, all those things. So if I want to be a peak performer in life, um, I need to practice at it. And how do I? Because, it, and here's what's crucial. It's, it's not just scrimmaging. It's not just role-playing. It's the skills that we use that we need to practice that because we're going to use these in a variety of different contexts throughout a day, throughout an hour. So those things, listening, um, communicating, collaborating, empathizing, being agile, being a leader. Um, I'm sort of obsessed by the work of Danny Kahneman. He wrote the seminal book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, and he's got a new book out called Noise. And I was lucky enough to uh, basically give notes on an early chapter because a friend of mine was working on it. Um, and then I, I just finished the, the whole book. And one of the things Kahneman, he, he's famous in Thinking Fast and Slow for talking about all our various biases that we have uh, that affect us in, in our judgment. And noise is different. Um, and so, so we're, we're fighting bias. We're fighting noise. Um, we probably have a, a much uh, a more generous um, uh, understanding of our ability to hear what's being said and communicate effectively to people, um, we're really not very good at it um, across the board. And, and when you when you really sort of think about that, you, you're probably going to admit that to yourselves. And if you don't, um, you might be a sociopath, or you certainly have a problem, I think. So um, uh, understanding all of that, uh, uh, the need to uh, really double check ourselves um, is hugely important. And yes, and is, is a great example of this. So in behavioral economics, uh, we have learned that our default setting is to say no or do nothing. Uh, so in improv, yes, and is basically a nudge, a tonic against that. And this is crucial to know as well, that it's not like you just never stop yes, anding. 
Yes and is about early stage uh, innovation. It is about creating an abundance of ideas, hearing an abundance of viewpoints so that you get past your anchored thing. In noise, there's a study that essentially shows that if you're in a business meeting trying to decide something, uh, the first person who speaks is likely, whatever their opinion is, going to anchor the rest of the group. That's terrifying to understand because it's not anywhere near uh, a, a smart way to make a decision. So yes and like doesn't allow that to happen because you need to sort of build on everyone's input until you have enough ideas in your rubric to make a better decision. So that's just one example and there's many. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And uh, thinking about kind of yes and too, if, especially as we look into maybe more agile or work in complexity, I feel like it also has a bias for action built yeah. in. Right. For and sure. uh, some some people I've talked to both from business and sport, one of the fastest ways to get over fear is action. Uh, yeah. right, and how you, you, you get into it and you learn and you go <laughs> as it's in, in progress, right? Um, so the one of the other uh, kind of curiosities I have is um, because another general principle of improv that that I use is, and, and I might not even be framing it the right way, but I just refer to it as declare and commit mm -hmm. uh, because I think that's important for, for individuals to the declaration of what is it that you're thinking and not not in a way that you have to like somebody to, like you said, the anchoring, but how yeah. can we, how can we all declare what we think? And, and for me, how can we get our mental models out there? So we all understand where we're coming from, but then whomever is taking the lead, what can we do to support them? You know, as, as we get started. Uh, yeah. But, there's a, there's a great, I was interviewing Dan Pink for my podcast and he shared with me a quote from Carl Weick, who's a professor, professor emeritus at the University of Michigan. And Weick says, uh, fight like you're right, listen like you're wrong. And I just think that's such a, a beautiful way of summing up this idea of like, yeah, commit, commit to your, your best ideas and then be open to change them because, because they're not fixed. You know, the, the idea might change and be wrong in one context and right in another. But if you don't commit to, to the action or the idea at the onset, it's chaos or, or nothing happens. Yeah. So, you, so you have to, have, it, it's, it's, you know, it's all, what was, I think Fitzgerald said the key to intelligence is keeping two opposite ideas in your mind at any given time. That's yeah. what this is. It, it's like, there's always a counter. That's fine. Um, uh, but recognize that you do need to step forward and, and act. You need to have a bias for action. Uh, and then you need to have, uh, uh, humble uh, curiosity, um, uh, hum humble uh, intellect uh, to recognize that you might need to change the thing that you were doing. Thank you. And I love that you mentioned Carl Weick because a lot of my work is also focused on um, on sense making. Yeah, and so right. he's credited with coining the term. And then yep. uh, are you familiar with Deborah Ancona's work at yes. MIT? Yep. And, and I feel like as we're dealing with complexity, right? Yeah. That notion of sense-making is also very complementary to improv, right? You oh. have to explore this wider system, which means you're going into the unknown. You have to map it, right? So you have to describe it. And then you actually have to just participate in it to learn from it. And I feel like that's very much almost an improv mindset to leadership. Yeah. I mentioned that there's not a lot of studies on, on improvisation in academia, like, like good studies. The ones <laughs> that do exist are almost always 
highly dangerous or complex. So after disasters, and then Wyke studies of uh, aircraft carriers and the the individuals communicating to safely land those planes on the aircraft carriers is is where he talks about sense making, but also uh, says the words improvisation in terms of the ability to you know you 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 are this is the thing about improvisation. It's like we're not really just making it up. Um, we are highly practiced and we have ideas of the things we want to do. Um, we're just also highly open to the experience once we're in it to a, a, a complete and total focus on what's going on now um, so that uh, the inevitable uh, mistake or opportunity can be seized upon in the moment. And, you know, that is crucial in these sort of, you know, uh, crises, potential crises situations or complex situations. Um, and and I would say it's crucial to living a purposeful, meaningful life. Um, that, that's not, when you say you want to do that, that's not easy. That is the hardest thing to do. It's very hard to do what's right, uh, because doing what's right often means we're not gaining personally. We're probably um, holding someone else up. And, um, you know, doing that over and over again, that that is hard. Thank you. I um, want to dig in a, a couple other things, and this might be uh, also a little bit nerdy, but I know you gave a great talk on uh, failure and mm-hmm. almost failure as an asset. Yeah. And and you you described a, a, a second city a bit a pinata full of bees. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I loved is when you talked about it, but then you mentioned the cast members, right? You talk about how, like and what you learned, but do, do you mind telling guests a little bit about the pinata full of bees? Yeah, that that's that failed improv moment, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this was a show in 1995 that we did here, uh, Adam McKay, Scott Adsit, uh, among others. Um, and very experimental. It, it actually really sort of put me on the map as a theater producer, but the process was uh, uh, sometimes brutal, as it often is when you're doing, you know, uh, cutting-edge work. Um, and <laughs> so uh, Scott Adsit wanted to do this very meta bit in the improv uh, set. Uh, so he comes out and says to the audience, uh, look, um, we just heard this news um, that the president's been shot. Uh, so we're not going to continue with, with the improv set. If you want to leave, that's fine. We're actually just going to bring a TV out. And then we can also just watch this together, the coverage. So he brings the TV out, puts the TV on, and just starts playing a, 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 a sports bloopers, just a show of sports bloopers. And the cast is sitting watching this and laughing at the sports bloopers until one by one, every audience member leaves the theater. Uh, we got furious emails <laughs> later about this. Uh, and it was it was terrible. Uh, I, I believe Rachel Dratch said uh, you could hear a mouse shit uh, after that. <laughs> but the, but the, the, the point of it was it actually. Yes, it was a failure. Uh, we, we should never do that again. It was it was disrespectful of the trust of the audience. It gave us an insight and an idea that actually ended up to the opening segment of the show where we did have a planted uh, audience member who got plucked from stage. And the audience thought it was a real audience member, but it wasn't. But it was a much safer way to do the kind of meta bit uh, that uh, Scott wanted to do. We wouldn't have known that or gotten there if we didn't try the first thing and fail. And this is what improv has 
um, basically in common with the scientific method is it's just trying stuff over and over again until you get it right and then keep trying it over and over again until you <clears throat> get it better. Yeah, that right. One of my closest uh, friends is a uh, immunology uh, researcher, and uh, you know his PhD was in chronovirology. And I think, as he said two years ago, that wasn't sexy at all, right? But it now was. it's like, but that's uh, sexy. Yeah, he and I talk about the the uh, the similarities on on a regular basis. Uh, actually, pre COVID, when we we'd gather at a bar on a Friday, but we'd we'd talk about scientific method research. We talk about design and improv, and basically, how does he help PhD candidates? How does he help postdocs become better researchers? And the notion of failure. And learning from failure is hard because also even for PhD candidates, they've been really successful to date. Right. And so when they put themselves out there with what could be a really interesting question, uh, they're also risking that they're going to, but you know, like how do you, helping them frame that as more learning opportunity rather than failure seems to be a, a really important part. So I really appreciate you bringing kind of the scientific method up as well. Uh, this is a uh, much, much kind of kind of lighter topic, but uh, what are your favorite improv games? Oh, wow. Um, I love Take That Back. Uh, so that is a game where two people start a scene and then there's a third person to the side with a bell. And every time they ring that bell, the person who has just spoken has to take back the thing that they said and uh, say something new. And often they'll hit that bell three, four or five times. This is the, one of the reasons I love it is it's basically practicing divergent thinking. It requires you to, to find a new, new choice. It's also called new choice sometimes yep. um, over and over and over again. And inevitably it produces comedy. Uh, there's a, there's a I, I talk about this quite a bit in my talks, but there was a recent fMRI study out of China uh, that it was a neuro, uh, basically neuroscience under an fMRI machine. They discovered that the same uh, part of the brain that lights up when it produces an insight uh, is the same part of the brain that lights up when it uh, uh, produces humor, uh, like understands a joke. So this sort of aha to ha ha link uh, <laughs> is not surprising. So improvisation is not in itself like humorous. Uh, one of the reasons so much comedy comes out of it is it is very much dealing in truth. And, you know, I am married to, you know, a, a comedy academic, a uh, professor of comedy, uh, and she talks about this a lot in her work, which is, which is, you know, truth, pain, distance, these are all the, the ingredients in the cocktail that is comedy. So, so it's not surprising then that you get these sort of powerful uh, uh, insights that also come from the world of, you know, real hard laughs. Thank you. Um, one one of the one of the things that I've been working on a new collaboration with folks is uh, a term we're working with is effectual innovation. So the focus is uh, instead of what most I would say most large organizations probably suffer from what we actually call improv theater, where they're putting in the things to look like they're improv or, or innov innovation theater. Sorry, not improv mm -hmm. theater, innovation theater. But, and what we're looking at is like how do we innovate the way we innovate. And a lot of it is starting small and a bias for action. And so one of the other things that I, I really appreciated from another talk uh, that you gave, but the way you framed improv and yes, and is right. If you're starting from nothing, no will get you nowhere, right? Because yeah. you don't have anything. Yeah. 
but it's not enough to just say yes. It's yes, and, and you have to do, and you have to build, and you have to go. And you know, we've been looking at also uh, kind of improv method in effectual innovation. So how do you start with what you have? You still have yeah. big dreams and aspirations, but building momentum and learning along the way is incredibly this important. Interesting thing, uh, I, I, I got invited to a panel that was around innovation, and people kept conflating creativity and innovation. And I think it's an important distinction between the two of these things, which is the creative act cannot have any judgment attached to it. You are not being creative if you are judging yourself or, or others, that, that's sort of the opposite. And yes and is very much uh, about the creative act. Innovation is the thing you make uh, that is novel or unique out of the creative act. Uh, you want both things, but but both things are not not the same. So so for in a business context, then you have to create safe spaces for people to be creative, which involves a lot of sort of cycles of failure. But then you have to have a space of innovation, which is where you take all those ideas and you turn them into a thing. And this is what is unique uh, to Second City as opposed to a lot of other improv theaters or sketch comedy theaters. So we're both. Most people are one or the other. So, so we start with the improvisation, then we turn it into these really crystalline, beautiful, theatrical scripts and moments and shows. Uh, but but, but we, we have a very uh, specific process about how to get there, and, and it's rooted in, in improv, uh, but it doesn't end there. And I think that that is another thing that's a, a sort of a misnomer for people when they first, you know, are like, why are you working in, in business? And we're like, well, we are. We're trying to spark people's, you know, creative uh, minds, but then we also do innovation work. We also show people how to um, uh, use S and to explore and heighten um, because you are trying to create a thing together, which we all do. You know, the myth of the lone creative is a just a tired trope uh, in American culture. It was never true. Edison had like just a workshop full of people making making his stuff. I'm not saying that you know he and Steve Jobs didn't have a particular genius. They, they did, um, but there was always a lot of people in, involved. And I think the the more we we can get away from that myth, uh, the healthier our systems are going to be. Because you know our business systems are built on industrial age ideas, and we're decades past that. And the institutions just haven't changed yet. Yeah, absolutely. Th thank you. I, I remember one time uh, going to uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, in, in Oak Park, but then the, the studio. And to your your point, not you know the lone, the biggest thing that surprised me were the number of desks that were there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was expecting like, what did, what is this man thinking? Like, what were the things around? <laughs> The thing was a lot of fucking people, right? Yeah. It was, uh, there were tons of people, right? Yeah. Uh, and so I appreciate that too. Like you said, with Edison, the amount of people that are actually part of this ensemble, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, to your point with, uh, we're beyond the industrial revolution. And that's where I've seen so many businesses to me that struggle with complexity where they may yeah. have, you know, they may have intelligently solved a problem, but it was relatively tame or complicated, but not complex. And as the world's become complex, emergent, and where they struggle because they seem to lock down on these transactional views of knowledge, like I went to school, I learned that years ago, I don't need to learn anything else, or right. here's how we solved it in my day, uh, and also produces a lot of wonky behavior and toxic kind of leadership. And so that's yeah. 
one of the things that I'm also curious about too is uh, how you help train, but like, if you don't mind giving me an example, uh, like either from getting new performers ready for second city or when you're doing, doing work Mm -hmm. with business, but the notion of safety, respect, listening again, all those soft skills, but actually where it's a safe space and place for conversation, how do you help people get over that hump? Because that is like, traditional business folks when I was growing up you're weak if that's what you you know you you, you have to you have to establish dominance yeah right uh rather than how do I open it up and let everybody participate I I mean I think so much has changed in the last decade uh in terms of um multiple generations in the workplace in terms of the academic literature um let's take power for example like Power used to mean power, like you had it and you could just crush anyone. Basically, a thousand people on Twitter can take you down in a moment and take down a company. That 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 kind of distributed power did did not exist. It was it was not in our hands, and so so it's not so it's not safe. And and, and frankly, it never was. When you improvise, um, you are creating norms among the group. Um, and what is essential in that are things like trust. Uh, Amy Edmondson talks about psychological safety. That is what you need if you are going to do this stuff. You need to know that I've got your back, uh, and I need to know that you've got my back. Those are the agreements that we start out in improvisation. And look, when a class or a show or something goes awry, it's usually because there's one person who ain't doing that. And when you know a person isn't doing that, it doesn't work. Uh, so really, everyone's got to be on the same page with these basic rules and tenets of improvisation. So that's what we're teaching in the early stage improv classes. We scaffold from there, uh, but the early stuff is is very simple agreements around how, how we're going to communicate, how we're going to listen, how we're going to respect each other, how we're going to trust each other. Um, it requires an incredible sense of authenticity and personal storytelling so you can get to the group storytelling so you really want to share these sort of and they don't have to be like huge truths about yourself but when you share even and there's evidence around this in literature that we had access to at the university university of chicago and we built exercises around it um, but these like little tiny unique things about you and often when you can um share your failings this is this is a thing that um, my wife talks about this, and when she distinguishes between stand up and, and improv. So in improv, when groups or people are improvising, we're perspective taking from the audience, right? So we're we're getting their ideas and then building these things. Stand up comics, on, on the other hand, uh, begin their act by perspective giving. They give the audience an idea of who they are, and usually that's um, uh, with sort of damning uh, ideas uh, about all your your failures and, and that. So you think of Patton Oswalt talking about him being sort of dumpy or whatever. Um, just list the stand-ups. They, they start their act with their own negative traits. There's a reason that they're doing that, which is we as human beings really respond well to those declarations. And we also respond really well to personal details. We feel like someone is authentically um, giving of themselves. Uh, that's what we look for in terms of leadership, uh, not the, the former idea, you know, control and command. I've got it. I've got it. You know, great. We'd rather hear the uh, uh, completely honest. I don't know. That's fine. 
Uh, but if I know that you ultimately are going to work hard and, you know, be honest with me, cool. I'm going to follow you. Right. Thank you. Uh, it's interesting. You mentioned Pat Oswalt. I was uh, on a road trip uh, recently and was listening to an interview between Scott Dickers and oh, yeah. Pat Oswalt. And uh, Pat Oswalt also referred to that as uh, some of his maturation over time because he talked about like a lot of stand up comics early. They're going to like almost be defensive and not vulnerable. Here's how I encountered the stupid person here, here, here's where these people are inept. But then later it's, you know, that vulnerability that invites the audience in and uh, then seems a little bit more participatory. And I really appreciated him talking about that as a form of maturation, because I've talked about leadership is I think one of the most uh, humble and kind of wise things a leader can say right now is I don't know. Yeah, but it's let's find out, right? But being that being vulnerable. Yeah, I was just had this conversation on Friday. Uh, uh, I have a couple friends who are in academia who want to do a study. Uh, basically, they want to study all the incoming uh, level A students, the beginning people, and also the people in my wife's comedy major, the freshmen. They want to measure whether these people who are coming in have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. So, if, if you're not familiar with Carol Dweck's work out of Stanford. Her idea is that uh, creative people operate with a growth mindset, meaning that they're open to change and, and, and building new skills. And people with a fixed mindset kind of feel like you've got your talent or you, or you don't. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense because, like, babies aren't doing math, but whatever. Uh, there are people with that. So here, here is the argument. I don't have an answer for you, but I just think I'm yeah. curious, which is I get how this study is going to work. And, and I, I believe, like the authors of the study do, that people probably with a growth mindset do do better. We have uh, sort of um, anecdotal evidence over the years that people who are inclined to be stand-ups have a rougher time working inside ensembles. So the question for us on the table was, do we think the stand-ups are operating from a fixed mindset? So I, I don't necessarily think that it's the growth mindset is, is a key indicator of producing comedy as much as it is a better um, attitude for when you're improvising and working in a group. Because I think a lot, a lot of stand-ups are... <laughs> my experience, you know, not really good at, at working with other people. They've got their thing. Yeah, I, yes. And I, I feel part of that too, is because they've worked on a punchline, a deli- right. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're, they're trying and, and some do it better, but they're trying to force that out. Right. And like, Spice. if yeah. you're in improv and you're waiting to get your line out, right. You're, you're not, not listening right. and, and you're not in the flow. Right. Right. With some of the work that you're talking about, also uh, academic uh, connections, by chance, are you familiar with the work of Ed Hess? No. So, uh, not not to give you homework, uh, That's but I'm writing it down. Uh, maybe this is like Red Ball, uh, but yeah, right. this is uh, Ed was an investment banker, and then he taught at uh, Darden for 20 years, and uh, so. I mean, it, it, to me, it was counter to an investment banker in the eighties and then teaching in business school. Ed's latest book, hyper learning is also how are humans successful in the future? And what you had mentioned earlier, it's very much on doubling down on being human Yeah. and hyper learning is about forgetting and Mm -hmm. learning quickly. So there are certain things that just don't hold true anymore, or they're, 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 they're not helpful. And uh, the foundation of how do we embrace hyper learning to be successful is 
we become better collaborators. And he said the foundation of that is actually that we have agendaless meaning making conversations. And mm-hmm. to me, maybe it's it's like law of a hammer from, but it sounds like improv, right? Sure. This agendaless, but it's meaning making. And it's just also like I think, you know, you've you've equated like kind of almost uh improv to group yoga before yeah. or right it it's all, how do we get in a space so we can be better collaborators? And that's, and he said, it's all, it's come down to him from decades of studying high performing leaders, high performing organizations, high performing teams. And what it comes down to is this notion that I'm willing to learn, I'm willing to let go and, and I'm there to support people. And, and one of the things he argues too, is the hard part is, We've we've known these things about effective leadership for thousands and thousands of years. Yes. We're just not very good at practicing. We just, we just them. haven't applied them. Yeah. I often use the phrase meaning is made in moments. Uh when we can take that approach when we wake up in the morning and then check in with ourselves over the course of a day and recognize that every conversation with someone is an opportunity to do just that. So why would you have an agenda when you're chatting with your friend at the office, uh, those bonds are tight because you don't. So, so that, but that, you know, as, as we keep saying, right, businesses, our educational system, they are not designed to effectively do the things they're supposed to do based on the evidence we've got, which is decades old and keeps mounting. It is ridiculous. Ridiculous. This this sort of check the box and taking tests. And this is why we're brought into um, technology companies that are hiring young people and giving them outrageous uh, amounts of money because they're so skilled at the thing they're doing, but they can't talk to each other. They literally don't know how to talk to each other. And then they have to bring in, thank God, they have to hire Second City to come in and basically go to 101. Here's how you listen to another human being. So, I mean, that, that's that's just ridiculous. And I, I don't, I mean, I get why it hasn't changed because it's such an enormous problem, but the need for it to change is clear as day. Yeah, it's interesting too, I think, from a behavioral science and reward system, right? Because essentially at the end of yeah. the day, you get you get the behavior you incent in a company, yes. right? right? Whether it's formal or informal. And one of the big things that I struggle with is seeing organizations that talk teams, but reward yeah. individuals. Right. Hey, here's a team that did something astounding. So uh, we're going to pull Joanne. Uh, she was a project manager and we're going to give her a promotion. Yeah, bonus. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, Kelly, one of the things I like to cover with guests too is the notion of advice. And this comes in different ways. Like sometimes we talk about maybe something wise we heard from a mentor uh, or and, and we were too uh, kind of too young to really take it in. And over time, we realized this elder gave us this elegant payload of information that continues to reveal itself, or we didn't get good advice. So I I steal from Austin Cleon, steal like an artist. When we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. But from your perspective, either of those good advice you've received in your career. So after, I think it was Pinata Fulabies, or early in my producing career, when I was having a fair amount of early stage success and getting articles written about me and that sort of thing, uh, there was a uh, theater troupe here in town that created a satire of Second City uh, called Second City Doesn't Want Me. And my character 
like you basically had to sleep with to get hired, which was not my reputation, never has been my reputation uh, at the Second City, among other unflattering things. And my dad, uh, who is a theater critic, actually went to the show, which made that company later, I found out, feel terrible. Uh, but I, you know, I was upset about it. And I was talking to him one day and he said to me, because I was upset, and he goes, do you respect these people? And I go, no, I actually don't. He goes, then why are you upset? And that has stuck with me to this day. Not that I was very good at taking that. I, I'm much better now. I'm much better, but I'm also turning 55. So I better be better at it now. But that 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 idea that, you know, you're going to have critics out there and people are going to say mean things about you, even if they don't mean it, whatever. If you don't respect them, then why would you get upset? And my dad had such an even keel about himself. And, and it was something I just so admired and... and Again, I, I'm I'm not I don't have his game, uh, but I pay attention to it and try to incorporate it into my game as much as possible. Thank you very much, Kelly. It was an absolute honor to have you here. I really appreciate well, you, uh, the time and the wisdom. So I would just wish you the best today, and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Matt.